think it's just a new day in terms of leadership. What's expected of us as CEOs and senior executives is different than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. You know, our our employees are expecting to know where we stand on social issues. They're expecting us to have initiatives and agendas around those things. Um, it's not good enough to just kind of not get yourself in trouble publicly, you know, or not say the wrong thing that that we're being expected to speak. And I think it really, it really matters and it's worth considering. And I, you know, to, to the work that you're doing, I think it's worth developing our capacity and our capability as leaders in this area, because it's really one of the most important skills of leadership that I think is, is largely neglected. This is the social leader podcast inspired by business leaders, entrepreneurs, volunteers, and visioneers striving to close the gap between their passion and their social action. They are the leaders among us who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charitable intentions to lead with greater social impact every day. Social leaders are the most impactful leaders in the world because they are empowering companies and communities to sustainably solve our world's most pressing problems. Hey, real quick before we begin, I want to say thank you to Dan Stolp at Sandler Training. Sandler Training is the sponsor for this episode of the Social Leader Podcast, and they are your local leadership sales, sales management training and development firm. Thank you to Sandler Training and Dan Stolp. And now on with our show. Welcome back to the Social Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews, and I cannot believe who I have as our guest today. You are going to be so excited. My guest on the podcast is Megan Hyatt Miller, the president and CEO now since the last podcast has taken that role of Michael Hyatt and Company. She's also the co-host of a very popular business podcast called Lead to Win, one of my favorite podcasts. Definitely should check that out. She's also the architect of Michael Hyatt and Company's standout culture, which I think is something we're really going to get into today because helping her team win at work and succeed at life is a big part of their culture and delivering the phenomenal results that they've had at the same time is really tied in with culture. And she's going to talk about that. And and then under her leadership, Michael Hyatt and Company was also named in 2020 of all years by Inc. Magazine, one of the best workplaces in the country, top American workplace for employee engagement. Just amazing that she did that with her team during 2020. She's also an incredible mom, an incredible wife, an incredible human being. And I am so glad to welcome you to the podcast. Megan Hyatt Miller, welcome to The Social Leader. Hey, thanks for having me, Father Justin. I've been really looking forward to this. I always love when I get to hang out with you and talk a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we had one of my favorite podcasts of 2020 was when you and I got to talk last year. People can yeah. go back and check that out. It's one of the early episodes. But thanks for making time to come back. And you just released a brand new book, When It Works, Succeed at Life, Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of overwork. What a great title. So <laughs> thanks. Tell me about this book. Tell me yeah. about how, how this came out. Well, this is really kind of the heartbeat of our message and our work at Michael Hyatt and Company. You know, we're a performance coaching company. We uh, teach entrepreneurs and business owners and senior executives how to get the vision alignment and execution they need to do something um, we call winning at work and succeeding at life or the double win. And really this idea of the double win came about kind of out of, uh, I'm, 
in business with my dad, Michael Hyatt, out of his story. Um, and then later mine, as he was kind of coming up professionally, he, he was formerly the CEO and chairman of Thomas Nelson Publishers, a, a publicly traded publishing company um, with about uh, 700 employees and $250 million in annual revenue. And, you know, as he was kind of going through his career, he made a lot of sacrifices like a lot of people do to get to where he ultimately ended up in that role as CEO of Thomas Nelson. And he he was winning at work, but he wasn't succeeding at life, you know, mm. and he, he really got to a place where he tells the story of um, coming home to my mom. This is like when I was in high school, you know, so this is 25 years ago now. Right. And he's, uh, he comes home to my mom with his biggest bonus check he's ever gotten. He's so excited to show her and, you know, he's turned a division around at that point of his career. And he, she thinks she's going to be so excited. And she says, we need to sit down and talk, you know, right, and right. He, he starts telling uh, or she starts telling him the story about how she really feels like a single mom and that we, mm -hmm. his five daughters really never saw him and that she wasn't sure kind of how long she could hang on anymore, you know, and wow. he thought he was doing the right thing and providing for his family and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but he had kind of won the battle, but lost the war in many ways. And so what we talk about in our book is this idea of kind of the two um, options of success that are presented to us in the world. One is called the hustle fallacy, which is really what my dad was pursuing. We see this in influencer culture. We see it certainly among executives and leaders, you know, where it's like, hey, I've just got to double down for these few months until I get this big initiative done, you know, until I get this business off the ground, until I get this, um, you know, campaign funded. You and I were talking about that a little bit before, whatever, you know, right. whatever your big thing is, you know, I've just got to make some sacrifices. And, you know, that means that my health and my personal relationships and other other priorities, social priorities, whatever, are going to take a back seat. But that's OK, because it's just temporary. Unfortunately, as we all know, because we've either tried it or seen mm -hmm. the wreckage of this happening, temporary has a way, a sneaky way of becoming permanent. That's right. And that's, and right. that's the hustle fallacy. You know, it, it turns out it never, the payoff day doesn't usually come, or if it does, the price tag is very high. And so then the flip side of that is what we talk about, of, about the ambition break, right? So this is where you say, ugh. I don't want to do that. I'm not willing to compromise my health and my impact in the world and my most important relationships. Guess I'm going to have to throttle my ambition back so that, you know, I don't compromise those things and maybe I won't re reach my potential, but that's okay. My dad and right. I really say those things stink. We don't like either of those options. We really feel like there's a scenario in which it's possible to not have work and life in opposition to one another, that they can actually be complementary and that you can win at work and succeed at life. And that's what we call the double win. It's really the third option. It's what we've built our business and uh, our message around. Oh, I love that. And when I read the book about the double win, I actually saw in it a lot that related to what we talk about on this podcast with mm -hmm. regard to social leadership. Right. One of the concepts in the book is this idea of the cult of overwork. You guys yeah. talk about how that blinds you yeah. to your family, your personal priorities, and so many other things. Mm -hmm. When I read that um, and, and that cult of overwork, how it keeps us from the double win, I also thought about how the cult of overwork keeps you from closing that gap between your social passion and your social action. Look, yeah. I'm too busy at work or, right. or I've hit that ambition break. I'm just going to be home now. And when we do that, we let go of all the things that we're passionate about, you know, the big tangled problems in the world that we feel called to solve yeah. or to at least help solve. So let's talk about that. You know, when you are achieving and you are growing, is it possible to also sort of neglect your accountability or, 
or your um, emphasis on your social priorities as well? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, 1000%. It's not only possible, it's, I think it's probable unless you have a different way of thinking about it. So, you know, there's just not enough time to do everything, right? And the first things to go, if you're a leader in an organization, are probably going to be the non-revenue generating activities that right. you have on your list, right? You know, I'll get to that next year, I'll get to that next quarter, whatever we tell ourselves. But when we make work the primary and singular orientation of our life and we neglect all these other domains of life, which we talk about in the book, When It Work and Succeed at Life, there are 10 domains of which work is certainly one and one very important. But when we neglect the other ones, um, you know, we, we really end up in this cult of overwork and it leaves us empty. The funny thing is about this, and, and I always like to say this when I'm talking about this concept of the double win, you know, you may be listening to me right now and thinking, well, then I guess I've, I'm going to have to compromise some of my operating results. So I have time for this social leadership stuff that Father Justin's always talking about. And I would say, no, you don't. That in reality, what we're talking about in this book is a kind of lens through which you view your work in life that causes you to make better decisions where constraints mm -hmm. become a vehicle for productivity and innovation and freedom. And in fact, really what we walk you through is a process, a, a performance strategy, really, for how to get the best results in your business, but also in your life. And by prioritizing things outside of your work life, you're actually strengthening your professional potential. Potential. You're strengthening your operating results. And we've seen that time and time again with our 700 business owner executive coaching clients, as well as ourselves and our own business. You know, a lot of the times I'll talk with individuals, especially CEOs who are really focused on ROI, and I'll say right. it's great to have return on investment, but what about return on relationship? You know, right. you can be so focused on achieving that you actually aren't accountable to those people or the resources who helped you to achieve. You can become so yeah. focused on growth that you can neglect grace or neglect right. or forget giving. And I think that those are responsibilities that come along with yeah. success. Well, also, I, I feel like those things are interdependent. You know, if you talk to successful CEOs, you're not going to find, except in rare occasions, people who just totally neglect relationships in their life. You know, the CEOs that I know are very good at relationships, that they prioritize relationships. They prioritize the long game in their organization. And what that looks like from my perspective is prioritizing this idea of the double win within your own team. You know, how can I take care of my people in such a way that they have the opportunity to win at work and succeed at life, not only for their own benefit, which certainly is, is a part of the, the consideration there, but also so that I'm investing in their ability to perform at their very best, you know? So I think that these things, th these relational things, you're investing in your community. I mean, there's, there's this interdependent relationship. And you and I, we were talking about how does the cult of overwork kind of get in the way of our social priorities? I think that when we're in that kind of myopic place, it can create a certain kind of narcissism and, uh, and just blindness that causes us to not realize how interdependent things are, you know, when it's all going our way. Yeah, there's a myopia where we can just mm -hmm. get radically focused, which actually the world rewards, right? Right. But the hard thing to remember, and the proof is in the pudding, the data mm -hmm. is out there, yeah. that actually the CEOs and the companies that do the work to become social leaders, they actually succeed. They retain the best employees. That's they right. attract the best talent. The yep. diversity actually, you know, when you work on bias, it leads to greater creativity. Absolutely. You know, 
I want to go back to something that you mentioned, Megan, because you talked about employees. And, and one of the concepts in your book is that corporate life actually oftentimes orients the whole employee's life around company goals. Yeah. And then what happens to personal goals? Here's my yeah. question. With a company that's succeeded at building culture like mm -hmm. you all have and architected something so vibrant, how have you allowed the goals of your employees, maybe even the social priorities of your employees mm -hmm. to become a part of your workplace and inform your culture? Has that been yeah. important? It has. Um, I, I think, again, the, the idea of nurturing relationships and culture has a direct impact on operating results. So from my perspective as a CEO, I don't think about that as sort of a peripheral thing that I need to be concerned about because that's sort of what culture is demanding of us as executives right now. I think about that as integral to my strategy for success with my team. So for example, you know, the, the whole um, talent market right now is pretty constricted. You know, we're, we're finding even, we kind of thought maybe coming out of COVID, that wouldn't be the case. We're hiring about 25 people right now. And I can tell you that it is as competitive or more competitive as it's ever been. And wow. part of what people come to us looking for is culture. You know, they're not necessarily coming to us looking for money, although certainly that has to be there and it needs to be competitive. What usually wins us um, a candidate when they're comparing two jobs is the culture we have. And that's mm. because they're looking for congruence between their personal values and the way we run our company. So they're looking for that alignment. One, can I get behind what this company's about? But can the company get behind what I'm about? You know, is there room and space for that? And so practically speaking for us, part of how we create longevity and retention with our employees is that we have benefits that are all about creating the kind of uh, margin for people that they need to pursue their personal interests, their social priorities outside of work. So for example, you know, we have unlimited PTO. Now, some people are like, oh my gosh, that sounds like it'd be terrible to try That's to manage. It's, act it's actually not. It's, it's incredible. We still have people who <laughs> I have to like get on and say, hey guys, Y'all need to take some PTO because you have you've only taken, you know, two weeks this year or whatever. We try to get people That's to take right. at least three and a half weeks. And, you know, so we're trying to move people toward that. But the kind of autonomy and freedom that that gives people to do things uh, makes them want to stay. Where else can they get that? We also offer a one month sabbatical for every three years of continuous employment um, that people are with us. You know, that enables them to do all kinds of things in that time off that, you know, I think the big idea here is that they don't have to leave or they don't have to wait until until they retire to live out some of their dreams, whether it's, you know, for personal interests or for their impact in the world. If, if we can be a part of helping them realize their personal goals in a way that actually is supporting the company goals also, which it does, because when people are rested and rejuvenated, they contribute at their best versus when they're mm -hmm. exhausted and burnt out, um, then it's so win-win, you know, and that's what we want. We want to create a win-win environment where our employees are able to uh, perform at the top of their game, but they're also winning in the rest of their life. So why would they want to go anywhere else? You know, as a result, we have amazing retention. Well, one of the things I coach CEOs and senior leaders about in our social leader essentials e-course and, and in the work that I'm doing with our live live events is that if you actually can not only set up that system, but if you can allow employees to bring their social passion into work, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and the most incredible example of that is when the whole company takes on a social passion or a social yep. cause, whether that's as radical as something like Patagonia or Tom's Shoes, where you've where you've got those deep integrated priorities in, mm -hmm. in solving poverty or social issues, 
or if it's just allowing your corporate social responsibility to have the flexibility to have the employee's social passion come forward. And again, the proof is in the pudding. Listen to this. There's a a recent statistic that came out that said that millennials, which by the way, remember millennials, we're about to have the greatest wealth transfer that we've had in a generation. Mm -hmm. The millennials are definitely in the next five to 10 years, they're going to be the primary employees, the primary consumers. Well, a recent study came out and said that 70% of millennials would be willing to take a 30% pay cut, 30% to go to a company that aligns with their social priorities or doesn't push something that is not congruent with their social priorities. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the kind of thing that you're talking about is really critical, not just for the culture of the company, it's going to be critical for the bottom line of the company. Absolutely. Recruiting talent, right? Yeah, I think it's just a new day in terms of leadership. What's expected of us as CEOs and senior executives is different than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. You know, our our employees are expecting to know where we stand on social issues. They're expecting us to have initiatives and agendas around those things. Um, it's not good enough to just kind of not get yourself in trouble publicly, you know, or not say the wrong thing that that we're being expected to speak. And I think it really, it really matters and it's worth considering. And I, you know, to, to the work that you're doing, I think it's worth developing our capacity and our capability as leaders in this area, because it's really one of the most important skills of leadership that I think is, is largely neglected, you know, and most of us kind of show up without that skill and we have to learn it on the job. Yeah. And just like, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and go achieve the double win without some coaching, without some guidance. It's the same thing, you know, CEOs and senior leaders aren't going to wake up tomorrow as social leaders and understand how to be bias aware, understand trauma informed and strength based leadership. I mean, those are things that, you know, it's taken me 25 years of exposure and practice and I'm, I'm literally still practicing it. Yep. You know, one one of the other things that you bring out in your book, which I I think is really important on this topic, um, is that we've got to liberate our folks to be as productive as they can, mm-hmm. our company to be, you know, uh, as as generous and as successful as possible. And one of the statistics that you bring out is about stress, mm-hmm. that 12% improvement in productivity actually happens. This is a fact when the happiness of our employees is focused on, but actually you can get a 10% reduction in productivity if their stress level's too high, if they're not feeling plugged in, if their passions aren't uh, able to come forward. Yep. Talk to me a little bit about mental health and how you've yeah. focused on trauma and mental health in, in your life and in your company as CEO of Michael Hyatt and Company. Yeah, well, as you know, from our you know kind of personal conversations, this issue is near and dear to my heart. I have five children. Uh, my younger three children are adopted and have some special needs. And you know, any child that's available for adoption has had a traumatic history, you know, just Mm. that's not how it's supposed to work to be available for adoption. So whatever has happened preceding that is inherently traumatic. And so a lot of our journey, my husband, Joel, in my journey of parenting has been about how do we do healing parenting? How do we walk alongside our kids and help them recover from trauma, process trauma, kind of make sense of their story. So it's a, it's a personal interest of mine, but I think it became Um, a corporate interest of mine professionally last year for a couple of reasons. So um, diversity is something we've really prioritized in our organization, particularly racial diversity. And of course, the events of last May when George Floyd was murdered and there were Mm -hmm. several other murders that were um, kind of publicized and, and happening around that time that were racially motivated. 
you know, that became a very personal thing for us where all of a sudden we had employees who were traumatized again around those issues. And it was a very public conversation. And so we had to ask ourselves, okay, how are we going to resource those employees and come alongside of them and make sense of, or, or not, not, not make sense, but make space for them to be whole people in the context of our culture, right? Because mm. if we're asking them to leave that part of their experience, their racial identity and their racial trauma kind of out of the the walls of our workplace, virtually, you know, figuratively speaking, it's not very human. And so what we did is we came alongside those folks. We offered to provide resources of, you know, therapeutic resources financially for them, subsidize whatever we could. Um, mm -hmm. And then we, we started a conversation really that's continuing even now about race, about racial justice, about how do we want to build our culture around those ideas? Um, and how can we do that in a way that is honoring of God's image in all of our employees, you know, and, and to be honest, that's a conversation that's fraught. It's, it's difficult. Um, I understand why a lot of people don't want to do it or haven't haven't done it because it is very challenging. But it's it's so worthwhile. And so I think you know that that was also happening. But then simultaneously, of course, we had the pandemic, right? And everybody's personal lives crashed into their professional lives almost literally in the space right. of just a couple of weeks, right? So you, now you've got your kids at home, you've got the toddlers, you know, crawling on your back while you're in a Zoom meeting. Maybe that was just right. my experience. You know, right. you've got the good kids virtual schooling, all this kind of stuff. It's hard to get your groceries. I mean, all everything that used to be easy was suddenly hard. And what we found is that you know, it used to sort of feel like personal and professional were a little bento box. All of a sudden, it's mm -hmm. a big plate of spaghetti. It's all in there together. And all of a sudden, what's happening in our, in our employees' personal lives becomes our business in the sense that, you know, we have to um, resource those things. We have to acknowledge them. We have to make space for people's mental health needs. And so we made some pretty drastic changes. We, in about April of 2020, um, kind of looking at the emotional, psychological burnout that people were experiencing with the pandemic, we decided to reduce our workday. And we were already kind of around a 40-hour work week to a 30-hour work week, a nine to three day for people. And we said, you know, you guys need more time. You need margin so that you can attend to your kids. So you can do all the things that are, you know, that were once easier now hard and take more time mm. and emotional energy. And we just did it honestly as a crisis response, as an experiment, but we've ended up keeping it. And the reason is, is that not only did we not lose any productivity, not only are our employees in a better uh, state of mental health and just general well-being, physically, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera, but it actually improved our operating results. And this is something we really talk about in the book is that, again, this idea of constraints, putting constraints in place, really getting clear on what your priorities are. We had a pretty aggressive profit goal for last year. We ended up exceeding it by 50%. In the middle mm. of a pandemic, I mean, with working 25% less time, we didn't cut anybody's pay, you know, we didn't lay anybody off. And I, I mean, I know people had all kinds of different experiences in the pandemic. Some businesses and, and industries were hit way harder than others. Um, but, you know, all that to say, I have empathy for that. But in our situation, you know, it was a pretty phenomenal year from an operating result standpoint, but we we dug deeper into caring for people holistically in our company than we ever have before. Um, I so think it, it just you... returned. 
You, I don't know if you realize how cutting edge that is. I was working with um, the senior, senior leaders of a, of a really big publicly traded company that I, I won't name. And they were considering the e-course and, and mm. the social leader e-course. When they got to the third section, our module on trauma-informed leadership and mm. how, how stress and strain becomes toxic stress yeah. and that creates trauma and all of that, you know, which I think is vital for leaders Absolutely. to know. They said, look, legal's not interested. Legal won't let us talk ah. about that HR. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, do you think that this rumbling emotional world that we all have mm -hmm. inside our hearts that is truly causing trauma is something that we don't need to address as companies, not only right. with the, the internal conversation, but as a brand and external conversation. And, you know, yeah. I, I just applaud you all and your team because mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you realize how cutting edge, how nimble, how agile, you know, that you all have been in that. And I, I just applaud you for that. Well, thank and you. It, it, it brings up something that's really critical. There's a great quote from Andy Stanley that says, it's direction, not intention, that <laughs> leads to destination. I'm going to say mm -hmm. that again. Direction, not our intention, is what leads us to our destination. And you talk about personal agency. You know, mm -hmm. even right now, you're you're describing, hey, I grabbed the 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 reins and I went this direction because I yeah. knew where I wanted to end up and it wasn't going to just drift there. It was something that I was going to have to co-create with my team. Mm -hmm. So, talk to me about how that's happened maybe in your personal life. You know, as a CEO, it's easy to talk about our companies. But how have you grabbed the reins and moved towards direction, not just sort of, I'll call it yeah. charitable intentions? Right. Well, I mean, I think a, a couple of things. First of all, you know, I was talking about my children who are adopted. All three of my children who are adopted are African-American. And uh, our middle boys, who are now almost 13 and 11, we adopted uh, a little more than 10 years ago. And I think that I had been kind of on a journey around understanding our history of race in this country, um, understanding the issues of racial injustice that were in play. But when we brought those boys into our family in 2011, it became intensely more personal at that moment. You know, now all of a sudden it wasn't talking about people who were outside of our family. Now we're talking about people who are inside of our family, people mm -hmm. who are going to grow up and be young men and adult men one day who may be targeted uh, by um, you know, unjust policing, who will certainly experience discrimination, all kinds of things that are not the same as our son, who's now 20, who uh, is my husband's biological son, right? So, and who's mm -hmm. white. So there, there are very different experiences. And so I, I think that Joel and my husband and I began a very uh, deep and long journey of education and uh, expanding our capacity for empathy, but then also figuring out um, action, you know, what action can we take in our community? What can we do to help to create a more just world? You know, so we're involved with an organization locally, an anti-racist organization that primarily focuses on education and um, things like that. But then also, I think, you know, this is kind of where the personal 
crosses over to the professional as the CEO of our company, you know, I, I, this may not be readily apparent, but I succeeded my dad in this business. He was formerly our CEO. Now he's the uh, founder and chairman of the company. And, and someday potentially one of my children will succeed me. You know, I'm like, got my fingers crossed. <laughs> one of them will want to do gonna, it. If, you know? Don't tell him I said this, but you're going to eclipse your dad. I know <laughs> your dad's awesome, oh, but you know what? We, we all want our children to succeed. You're a rock star. And I think that the company is in great hands. Well, now. thank you. I appreciate that. You know, but I'm looking forward to my own succession someday. And hopefully one of my children, and I think what I know now likely will be one of my younger children who will want to succeed me. Um, and, you know, I want them to look at this company and say, this company looks as much like me as it does like my mom or my granddaddy, you know, mm. uh, and that there's a, a culture of, um, diversity and equity and inclusion. I feel seen. I feel like I belong here. You know, there are other people who look like me who are leading where I think representation matters so much. And what, what I've realized is not only as a part of our vision, to your point about direction versus intention, we've actually written into our vision document, which is called a vision script. This is uh, from a book that my dad wrote called The Vision Driven Leader. Um, mm -hmm. We have a statement, a lengthy statement about racial diversity in that, you know, that's a, a critical part of where we're going in the next three to five years, which is kind of the time horizon for that document. Make that tangible though. What does that look like, Megan? I mean, yeah. when you talk about racial diversity, are you talking about becoming bias aware? Are you talking about hiring? Well, what, what does that a couple look of like? things. So kind of the, uh, the tangible measurable outcome is that we want to have uh, 30% people of color in three years within the organization at every level. And that mm. we want to have 50% within five years. So that's sort of like the thing you could literally go measure, right? But what is so critical about that is it's not just about checking numbers or ratios or whatever. Now we have to build a culture in which those people that we recruit want to stay, right? That mm. they feel like they have a seat at the table, that we get the benefit of their voices, that there's, that we really understand that unless they're at the table, there's something missing that's so valuable that we have to go out and get it, right? We have to like recruit those people and bring those people in. We've had to change our recruiting practices. We're doing education internally. In fact, I have a big meeting with our team uh, next Friday where we're going to be really talking a lot about this. It's an entire day long. And, you know, there's some some challenges to overcome. I mean, as a leader, one of the, the biggest challenges to that is that you're speaking to many different constituencies. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor who's built a multiracial church here locally in the Nashville area. And he was saying, kind of what you're doing feels like being a pastor in a way because you're talking to people these different constituencies, you know, with different concerns, different objections, and you're trying to get everybody aligned and moving in the same direction. And, you know, it's really hard work. I would say it's the hardest professional work that I've done, um, but it's also the most rewarding and the most valuable. And I think, you know, there's certainly a personal motivation for me with my own family. I want to be able to look at my kids someday and said, and say, you know, I did the things that I feel like you would be proud of that, that were necessary for you to feel seen and value that I wasn't colorblind, you know, that I, I was conscious of your identity and how that's different from mine and what you needed and really leaned into that. And then certainly, you know, the, there's a moral case for writing injustices, many of which happened within the context of the workplace, right? So this feels right. like the right place to do that. But then, you know, I think there's also a business case, which is, and there's been a lot of research on this. There's a great book called The Diversity Bonus that we might have talked about when we were together last, but yeah. uh, on the statistics of this, but companies with diversity tend to be more profitable, drive more revenue, have more innovation, you know, and as we're like moving aggressively toward a world that is at least 
50-50 white you know, people of color, we need to understand who are we marketing to? Who are we selling to? How can we make our products and services more accessible and more attractive to a diverse audience? I mean, I'm not going to be able to figure that out on my, on my own. I'm going to have to have other people at the table, different kinds of thinking, different points of view, if I want to innovate for the future, if I want to be prepared for the future. So I feel like there's a lot of different cases to be made for this, um, but it, it's, an, it's an intense uh, initiative and intense work. You know, a lot of the C-suite leaders and and senior team leaders that I work with in the social leader program don't have a sense of confidence that yeah. they know where to begin. Right. You know, they 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 say, I care, but now what? Right. 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 And so what role did education play for you? Yeah. Personal education. And I'm hearing about company education. What role and what's the importance of education in advancing the social priorities and the personal and the corporate context? Well, huge. I mean, I, I, I couldn't overstate it, that it is critically important. And I think it's partly where we build our confidence. You know, as, as leaders, we tend to uh, like to look like we have it together, you know? And so one of the things that I have learned in that process of education, and this is something I really have learned from Brene Brown, is the idea of I'm here to get it right, not to be right. In other words, mm -hmm. I'm here to learn and move toward getting it right, knowing that I'm going to make mistakes and it's impossible to do it perfectly. Um, and that's been really freeing for me because, I, you know, transparently, I'd love to just get it right all the time and be right, you know, and, right. and it's impossible. It's, you know, I know that in other parts of my work. And yet I think in this area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it feels really fraught. One of the things I would say though, you know, so you can do a lot of education on your own. There's so many great books out there to read. In fact, one that I've recently been reading that, you know, if you happen to be a person of faith um, that is excellent is called Reparations, A Call to uh, Christian Repentance and Repair. I think it's one of the best books mm. I've ever read on this. It just came out and it is fantastic. But um, what I have done also is surround myself with other leaders who can speak into this, particularly leaders of color, um, who can act as advisors to me. And this is true internally, and this is true externally, that I, I'm just starting from the, the presupposition that I don't know enough to do this on my own, and I need other people to speak into this and advise me so that I can see things that I'm not naturally going to see. And maybe that's encouraging to some folks who are listening and thinking, God, like, I don't even know how I could you know, create an internal education program or how I could recruit. Like there are, there are so many consultants. There are people in your own community and in your own network that you probably know who, you know, you could hire to do this for you. And that's been a huge confidence boost to me. I think that the choice that I have made though, and, you know, if, as I look back on it, it's been really helpful is I'm choosing to put myself under their authority, so to speak. I'm choosing to adopt the posture of the learner so that then I can go out and lead and lead alongside other people in our organization, but not from the perspective of I've got it all figured out. I have the answers because none of us do, especially if we're white, you know, we just don't. Well, I applaud the work that you've done. And I completely agree that we need to take up the weapon of courage. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. courage is a weapon that we must use not only, you know, again, not only in our spiritual lives, yep. being bold and being, you know, being willing to learn, but especially in our corporate life, yep. beginning to merge our heart and our head, our, our Sundays and our weekends and our Mondays. And I know there are so many CEOs listening right now, so many senior leaders who are saying, yeah, I'm that guy on Sunday. I'm that woman 
on Saturday. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm that person in my volunteer time or in the excess or the margin of my life, but they are afraid or they don't feel equipped to integrate those priorities yep. into the meat of their life. I mean, think about it. Yeah. All the skills that CEOs have, all mm -hmm. the ability to return on investment, to build relationships, to move capital to market, to, to lead with greater social impact. And yet that just doesn't happen because they don't feel equipped. They're yep. worried about what people will think, you know, and we live in the shadow of our own passions in a sense, and we're mm -hmm. afraid of it. But man, it unlocks so much creativity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about the double win. I love that concept because it says make time, make space for your heart, yep. not just your head. That's make right. space for other people, whether it's yourself, whether it's your family, or whether it's your community, your employees, make time for other people. And mm -hmm. Megan, I, I applaud you as a social leader. I think you are a wonderful example. I appreciate that you've shared so much with us today. And, and my last question for you would be this. If somebody's hungry to make these changes, what are two or three best practices that you use in your life yeah. where people can begin that journey of closing the gap between their social passion and their social action? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I really think it starts at the level of vision. You know, what do you want? If you didn't see obstacles, if you didn't tell yourself the story that there's not enough time to do the things that matter, because that is a story. I think, you know, objectively, mm -hmm. we all have the same amount of time and some people are doing more with it than others. And so I think there's not enough time to do everything, but there is enough time to do the most important things. What are those most important things for you? You know, we really talk about in the book, this idea of defining your non-negotiables in the areas of your self-care, your relational priorities, which could include, you know, the area of social leadership and your professional results. What are those non-negotiables? And then how can you start to design a life and constraints around your work so that those things are supported and you can accomplish all those? Again, we walk you through a process of this in the book, but I think most things begin at the level of vision. What do you want? And then what would have to be true for you to get it? And I, I think fundamentally, there's always a way, you know, if you're clear enough on what you want, there's a path to get there. The problem for most of us is we don't take the time to get the clarity. And then the pathway is really muddy in front of us. Well, thank you for the inspiration. I, I completely agree with you. We have to set our intention. We have to mm -hmm. set our direction. We've got to move away from just charitable intentions, right? We've got to get to those deep and integrated priorities. Yeah. Um, again, congratulations to you on uh, this book, When at Work, Succeed at Life, I recommend it strongly to anybody who's listening. And I think it complements really well the work that that we're doing in, in social leadership. It's a great primer. Um, and thank you for taking time to unpack your heart with us and to share how you've moved the needle with regard to social priorities, both in your, in your professional life and your personal life. Megan Hyatt-Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Leader Podcast. Really appreciate your friendship your wisdom, and your time. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for having me, Father Justin. You bet. <laughs>